welcome back to the Marine Corps Association podcast. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. And William. Hello, everyone. And today we have a pretty good interview for you with... Uh, pretty good. Man. Pretty this good. One, this one, I I got to say, man, it, if, I was floored. Uh, <laughs> list, um, I was really just listening to it, even though I was interviewing. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't mean to cut you off, man, but yeah, Tom Schumann, uh, uh, Marine Corps Infantry Major. And... Yes. So the first thing, okay, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert for the very, very beginning of the interview. Uh, Tom Schumann plays, Major Tom Schumann plays a little bit of Two Truths and a Lie with Vic. <laughs> yeah. He introduces himself as an infantry Marine and a dad, and as the most uninteresting Marine in the history of the Marine yeah. Corps. Or something, Two of those things that. are true. One of them um, is totally false. And he is an infantry Marine, and he is a dad. However, he is not the most boring Marine and the history of the Marine Corps. By far. Um, like, just straight up, just yeah. like, it, he's got war stories for days, and they don't even feel like sea stories. They're yeah, like, I hate to even call them war stories. Yeah. That sounds so um, not what he's doing yeah. here. He's really just telling his story Yeah, that happened to be in just one of the most tumultuous places on Earth in yeah. 2009. And in a very, yeah. Yeah, like uh, 100 plus firefights, I guess is. Uh, I mean, uh, I think in his interview, uh, he mentioned I think 35 members of his platoon and 19 of them were casualties. Yeah, I, himself included, but he talks mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, and it, it, it's all downplayed. Like it's not <laughs> humble. Yeah, I mean that was another thing that came through. Not just the, the, the. I mean the authenticity of his account, but his humility. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a guy who embraces, I think, the ethos of Marine Corps leadership. Um, you know, and ha- me having been retired now for a few years, I was like, uh, you know, it's it, it's kind of easy for me to like, hey, young Marine, but hey, just, young buck, yeah, 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 yeah you know, <laughs> hey, good on you, know, good on you, there, on you devil dog, there. but like, <laughs> I found myself sort of like. I'd follow this guy, like especially because like half the time he talks is just he's telling other people's stories as well right. and putting putting not saying like putting them on a pedestal but emphasizing like their role and like in his mm-hmm. overall story. Yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah, such yeah. a good point. Downplays himself and uplifts everyone around him. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think he said he was surrounded by a lot of real tough dudes. Real tough dudes and a. Really tough situation, yeah. obviously. Like, and as you, you'll hear in the interview, like, not the best. We as the Marine Corps did not do them a lot of justice in preparing mm-hmm. them. Um, we had them going for a completely different kind of mission. Yeah, and for a different mission. And then mission changing, like, in action. Right, like, right. Uh, he touches on some WikiLeaks stuff that might have been going on. And, oof. It's, yeah, just what a what a what a just a, a sauce yeah. of an environment. Yeah, and um, uh, before uh, we get in there, near the end of the interview, we do talk about his uh, his uh, cause, his, his foundation, his foundation, yeah. uh, PB uh, Abate. Yeah, you can find it on if you just like go to LinkedIn. You can hit PB Abate. You'll see. His page there, uh, I think it's PB Abate. We'll put it in the in the mm-hmm. show notes at the end. But um, 
So you just Google PB Abate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Did you want to talk a little bit about the foundation? Or? I want. I mean, it's. I find it very. I just want to make sure that we slow down yeah. right now because yeah, focus, you. Uh, for sure. You guys both say P B Abate so fast. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. then you spell it out, and it's still so fast that I just wanted to say it very slowly. Yes. Good call. P B Abate. Um, it's. I don't want to speak too much about it because you do a great job going over it in the interview. Um, so, but P B Patrol Base, yeah, <laughs> Patrol Base, and it's called Patrol Base Abate because he has. And again, I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but uh, he has um, procured some land out in Montana where the he's welcomed anybody who is a service member. No anyone. boxes checked. No boxes need to right. be checked. And you can go and uh, you can rekindle um, that sense of camaraderie and uh, sense of purpose again out uh, in a in this wonderful wilderness out in Montana. So. Yep, and they are nationalizing, so there are yep. local chapters. So um, definitely look into that. Fantastic. And the website itself even has, like, a great litany of just resources for people mm-hmm. for varying uh, issues or, like, whatever, wherever you have going on. So definitely yeah. the website in is, in, is in itself worth checking out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. here's a guy who truly cares. He gives a dump about people in uniform. Mm-hmm. And... I just wanted to really slow down and mention that. Yeah, thank you for doing that. Um, so uh, before we get into that, though, I uh, just want to give a peek behind the curtain. We've got uh, an exciting month in November coming up, starting right now. with Not uh, just cake cutting. Not just cake cutting. <laughs> <laughs> We're barely even going to talk about the birthday, probably. Uh, Supper Fidel's Marines. Yeah, happy birthday, 246. <laughs> Looking good for, you know, 246. Um, yeah, we really are. Lean. Uh, lean at a 246. Lean green. You work yeah. out. It's, it, we cover the <laughs> neck, though. It, our age shows in our neck, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you guys work out. Uh, yeah, turtlenecks. Uh, they're not doing the crunches yeah. anymore, but... <laughs> yeah, it clearly works out. Anyway, uh, go, t- go enjoy a three-mile run, I guess, waiting for. <laughs> Keep it fit. Uh, no, we're barely going to touch on that, but we got, we got some good stuff. We're going to start diving into... Um, uh, force design, uh, amphibiosity. We're going to have a, a chat with the new CEO here at the Marine Corps Association, uh, General Charles Sharoti. And um, yeah, we got Tom Schumann today. And that is a peek at the future. Yeah. So without further ado, um, or don't. Uh, well played. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I'm slapping myself right now for how lame I am. We are Major Tom Schumann. All right. All right. Enjoy. So before the inter- uh, interview begins, want to just warn uh, everybody out there that if you have small children, um, anybody who uh, gets squeamish at graphic depictions of warfare or uh, anybody experiencing symptoms of PTSD, um, please uh, put on earbuds or headphones or hit pause and have them exit the room uh, because although it's ex- Tom's um, account is extremely informative and very authentic. Uh, he does not – it's very also very candid. So, um, it, yeah, it, there are graphic depictions of war and there are um, accounts of casualties and the actions uh, in combat. So please, again, just um, hit pause if there anybody in the, in the ear 
it with an earshot uh, who has sense is sensitive to these issues. All right, thanks. Enjoy the interview. As the official part of the show now commences, I want to welcome Tom Schumann. Thank you so much for being here uh, and taking the time to sit down with us and uh, have a little chin wag. I do want to say uh, just as a brief introduction of you that you are an infantry Marine and you are uh, currently attending uh, Naval Command and Staff up in Newport, Rhode Island. If you would, though, if you wouldn't mind, as brief or as long-winded as you want to be, just just give us a little bit about your background um, for our listeners um, who uh, you know want to know a little bit more about who you are. Sure. My favorite way to introduce myself these days is uh, I'm an infantry marine and a dad, and uh, I like that would be my preferred introduction, and uh, that's generally what uh, I do when I I, I don't. Um, you know, I I think I am ultimately the least interesting character in this career, and so I like to you know talk about the the stuff that makes this career exciting, which wasn't me. Uh, yeah, I, platoon commander uh, JTAC with 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 recon, um, uh, school of infantry. Company commander and uh, taught at the Naval Academy for a couple of years. It's awesome, and you you came to us uh, via Chicago, Illinois. Is that right? Yep. Uh, grew up on the south side of the city. Uh, my mom's Chicago cop. Twenty five years to ROTC up on the north side with Northwestern and, and Loyola's ROTC consortium commission in uh, two thousand eight. Very nice. Very good. And then um, as a lieutenant, um, you. Uh, actually chronicled a little bit of your experiences as a lieutenant in um, an article for the Gazette that's going to hit the shelves in November <clears throat> titled Wish for the Impossible. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about sort of what the the genesis and the impetus behind uh, this article was? Sure. And was it, uh, what year did I report to the fleet? July 2009. Um, reported to 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Uh, I was IOC 4 Tackle 9. Uh, so yeah, a little bit after July 2009, I, I reported to the 3-5. Um, 4 Tackle 9, I think, was a really special class. A lot of Marines who have who went on to fight and die. A lot of Marines who left some limbs out uh, in a couple different countries, and uh, a lot of Marines who are doing really uh, significant stuff in the Marine Corps right now. Um, I think that class, just that IOC class, our instructors are all now the Marine Corps uh, battalion commanders. And uh, it was just, a, I think, a really legendary instructing crew who had all just got back from Iraq. And um, yeah, that, that was that was like, I never knew I wanted to be a Marine. I never... Uh, I didn't really know I wanted to be infantry. I just, but at some point during I was July uh, 2009, I'm running around with that infantry officer class, and I and, and I said yes. This running with this pack of wolves. Uh, this is I'm I'm in the right place, and um, I was lucky. Nine of us went to uh, nine of us went to three five. Two went to one four, and that was it for the West Coast. Um, actually, two lieutenants didn't come back from Palm Fex. They went to three, four, deployed within a couple of weeks. Um, 
but that that was the only West Coast guys. Uh, got to three five, and they had just returned from the thirty first Mew. Uh, it was a tough time to be a platoon commander because three five had done Phantom Fury, uh, went back again to Fallujah, and so my junior Marines were all raised by Fallujah vets, and they went to Okinawa, and so they, you know, morale was not high. You know, they got haze, treated like boots, everything you kind of think of with a bunch of guys who just did a bunch of pumps back-to-back, and um, and then you go on, on the Mew. So the officers, it, it wasn't, you know, the officers weren't immune from it. The officers, the you know, the senior lieutenants in, in the battalion were really kind of, I thought, like, jaded, despondent, treated us really crappy um and i think everybody kind of was butthurt that they missed their chance to go to the show with this legendary unit who just and and so uh lots of discipline issues uh all kind of but at all to me change on a dime um you know i i was i said i argued you know training uh you're always training for combat but when you have a peacetime deployment on the end of that workup, I think it's significantly, significantly more challenging than anything else you'll do in the Marine Corps. And, and because as soon as you can say Afghanistan, it's 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 not it's it's the and, and, and as soon as you say we're going to Afghanistan and we can't bring everybody, there's a force cap. So you'll either get with the program or you'll get off the team. Yeah. Uh, you know, infantry Marines generally join because they want to go fight. And so uh, had a great aggressive workup. And uh, I, I will say our, our EMV, the Enhancement of Hobby Viper is what it was called at the time, was really uh, coin-centric. They had, they had done, the, the, they call them chums, you know, and like the chums, clear hole builds were very focused on the build and you were really winning the moolah and doing a lot of KLE and a lot of cultural training. And I'm reading, you know, three cups of tea uh, on the plane over and, and, and we get the Leatherneck and we're doing our RSO and I, and we get our, our language cards and our culture cards and we're getting another culture class. And I remember, you know, I'm pulling my squad leaders together in Leatherneck before we fly to Sangin and I'm like, okay, guys, like, quizzing them on like how do you say how are you and Pashtu, you know, like still thinking like that. Which I uh, the only fifth Marines unit that had deployed to Afghanistan was one five and they had a pretty permissive deployment. Um they were really spread out and they didn't it wasn't very kinetic and and, and so they kinda they talked to us and said, yeah, it's the coin stuff. There was one indication of warning, uh three sevens company commander had been medevaced and he came and talked to us in San Mateo before we flew out. Uh, he's now battalion commander two six, Ryan Cohen, one of the most legendary Marines in our Corps, I think. And he'd been medevaced from getting blown up so many times and singing. And he used to start to talk about the wild West. And uh, I was like, what? Uh, but I, you know, and, and so, yeah, we, we, we show up and this is what, this is, this is the playbook that did the awakening in Iraq, and this yeah, is the, oh, yeah. and this is what they think is going to happen 
in Afghanistan. It's just everyone's going to wake up one day and say, oh, this is a better way to live. And no, uh, that wasn't the case. And uh, on my first patrol, I, I took out 96 Marines. I had, I'd done no left seat. Uh, my first patrol, I was the patrol leader. I had 96 Marines and I had you know, almost the whole company. And before we were out of the entry control point, we were in uh, L-shaped ambush. Because we, we went out in Ranger file. So, you know, that dispersion of 94 Marines going out in Ranger file. I still had like a third of the, the unit inside the ECP in the front and had located an IED. And around the IED, they were getting shot at from both. Uh, and I was like, okay. And, you know, I run up to kind of where uh, contact is. And um, there, was, there was two or three people from 3-7 who went on that patrol. One was the platoon commander, one was an EOD guy, and I think one sniper, maybe. And as I tried to get to the Marines that were pinned down to get a better idea, uh, I go to sprint across uh, an open danger area between two cornfields. The corn at the time was 10 feet high. And as I went to run out in between these two cornfields, PKM, PDF just hammered down. I dove behind a... um, I dove behind some poppy, a pile of poppy that was, and while I was concealed, I was not covered, you know? Okay. And so the poppy was, he's just popping. And, and, I, and I turned to my machine gun section leader, and I said, he had a, a two or three, I said, I'm going to suppress this window. You start shooting 40 Mike Mike. And I'm shooting. Uh, he pops. He shoots a couple 40 Mike Mike. We were able to get through, and, and the 3-7 lieutenant turns to me. He's like, okay, Lieutenant Schumann. Now that you got your car, how about you make a decision? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> my decision was not to die right there. <laughs> and I'm pretty confident that the car was going to come. Like, yeah. this is the tone of the first five minutes. I don't wasn't too worried that we weren't going to get the car and staying in. And uh, so the first 100 days, we were in over 100 firefights. Every single day for the first 100 days, contact multiple uh, you had 14 KIA in the first two or three weeks. Um, there was a real feeling early in the deployment that, like, I don't think any of us are going to make it. And, um, and and so, yeah, I, I've been been preparing for this counterinsurgency. And I was I, I was the it was a defense in depth. The enemy had surrounded the patrol bases, built a defense in depth. Uh, with obstacles and PDFs and everything that you would then build a defense with. And it was us attacking to penetrate this defense and push them back. Uh, and, and so it was a very much like a range 400, you know, attack. It was just every day. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I felt like I, we were really thought we were, to me, it did not feel like a counterinsurgency. To me, it felt like, you know, and, and, and you kept hearing this, like, oh, there's no front lines anymore, and there's no front lines in the counterinsurgency, there's no front lines. And I'm like, oh, there's, like, a forward line of troops. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> the enemy is clearly at this line, and we come and we fight them here. Like, there is a front line here, and uh, this is straight uh, conventional infantry rifle squad tactics is what we got what we got going on out here and uh and 
I think uh, people started to accept the fight that we were in initially, at least the, the, you know, when, when you get 14 brains killed in a couple of weeks, um, people just, they took the gloves off and just said, and so we, we started to hit back and uh, we started to learn the AO a little bit. And we started to learn some TTPs and uh, the advantage slowly shifted. Um, and, but at, at, I think it was, uh, I, I don't I didn't know much about this. I just was looking this up right before we started talking, but I guess there was an, a wiki's a WikiLeaks, a WikiLeaks uh about combat logs in Afghanistan when, when General Petraeus had so I, I think General Crystal had been relieved. Oh, and then Petraeus came in right around when when we showed up there in the fall of, of, of two thousand ten and I guess there had been a WikiLeaks and it talked about a, and I'm guessing this WikiLeaks had a kind of, I think it was like, it was like, it was the logs. It was like log books of whatever. And, and it probably showed a lot of civilians getting killed and that kind of stuff. And uh, that's when this updated track tactical directive came down. And this updated tactical directive was all about restraint, restraint, restraint and this phrase that was getting beaten to us was it was courageous restraint and, the, and there were like these vignettes about how it was it was there was more valor in demonstrating courageous restraint than you know killing a guy and um it really uh, felt like it put us at a very distinct tactical disadvantage and I am particularly jaded, uh, I think. Of, and, and so um, really late December, the Taliban says, oh, we want to reintegrate. We want to become part of Jeroa. The local tribe said we want, and, and all, everybody on the ground says, like, there's no way. Like, <laughs> he's just fighting us yesterday. There's no way. And, <laughs> but this was, you know, this was a big moment at the time. Sangin wasn't all the headline. You know, you couldn't turn on the nightly news and not see something about Sangin. And uh, everybody wants to be the one who was there for the awakening and and it's shifting the tide in the war. And um, you know, Secretary Gates is coming out to to Sangin at that time. He came out while we were out there, and uh, he's writing all these letters. You you know, you read about it in his, in his memoirs and. Um, General Mills is making comments about how this is a war like Iwo Jima and, you know, and, uh, and, and now here's the opportunity where the, they, they say they want to reintegrate to the, the government of Afghanistan. And um, so they came down hard with these, emphasizing these directives and our fires were being denied and, you know, we're Marines and we follow orders. And it was like, there's a new way of doing business. And uh, so we went out and we operated uh, in, in a manner that put us at a significant more risk. And, you know, they, they put, we even got a op pause. We stopped patrolling uh, for a week around Christmas because the Taliban was going to pull up all their IEDs and turn in their weapons. And they didn't want to pull up their IDs because they didn't want any Marines to, you know, shoot them while they were doing that. 
Well, what they did is they turned in like three or four rusty Lee Enfield rifles uh, and they relaced the entire AO with, with IEDs. And what really was happening is they couldn't get the poppy planted because the fighting was so intense that if you were outside in the daytime, you were probably going to get shot. And so most of the time, the farmers in Sangin were probably Taliban anyways, but the, even the ones who weren't were like, you know, I'm not going outside because you and the Marines are, I'm going to be caught in the middle. And, like, mm. and so the Taliban usually could be very persuasive with the local populace and say, like, you're going to do this or I'm going to kill you. And the local populace would usually, you know, say, okay, I'm going to do what you're saying. But in this case, it was like, no, I'm, I'm going to be dead either way. And so, I'm not, <laughs> so uh, this was like one of the few times I think the local populace was like, I'm not going out to plant the poppy uh, because I, you probably will kill me, but I'll definitely be dead if I'm out on a Tuesday morning because you guys go after it all, all day each and every day. And so um, they really turned strictly to an IED campaign. Uh, the firefights dropped off. But on December 28, 2010, uh, one of my, this is our first op after the, the really heavy emphasis on the tactical directive and um, one of my one of my machine gunners, we set a cordon around a compound that we had found a couple IDs in the doorway. And one of my machine gunners sees somebody spotting us with a radio. Any that was the week before that machine gunner is opening up with a burst, no, 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 on his own initiative. And he he turns to the machine gun section leader, and says, you know, sergeant. Uh, can I shoot these guys? Does this, this constitute a hostile intent or act now? And uh, section leader, following orders, listen to my brief, you know, and I listen to somebody else's brief, right? And he said, no, not, not, doesn't constitute not enough these days. And uh, that guy initiated remote control ID that uh, killed Heaven to Win. That was the third Marine of my platoon killed. Um, and there were a lot of things that I could have done differently. So ultimately it's all my responsibility. Uh, anything that, that happened with in my platoon, you know, 19 casualties and each one of those is, is my casualty, uh, 19 to 35. And, um, but that, that guy, that trigger man would, would be dead. And, uh, that ID doesn't go off. And we were, it was, we demonstrated courageous restraint. And we paid for it in Tevin DeWin's life, who had a, at the time, a four-month-old son, Tevin Jr. Uh, that, so, uh, yeah, I, so I, 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 uh, I'm in, now, you know, 2018, I'm in grad school at Georgetown and taking a, uh, a class, and I had an opportunity to, to write about a book and uh, just use Bing West's One Million Steps. And uh, from that paper, kind of, that, that's where the, the, I, I started to really kind of, so from some of the stuff that Bing argues and that from my own experience, uh, I, you know, wishes for the impossible. And I, I use a lot of kind of Clausewitz in there a little bit. I, I talk a little bit about Clausewitz and um, that's where that comes from. Yeah, your article, um, I mean, <clears throat> other than just being really well written, really does touch on a lot of the thing I really appreciate about your article was is that you you reach back to uh, things that we hold as Marines as like sacrosanct, you know, maneuver warfare, Clausewitz, 
And then you bring it into this modern day context with juxtaposing exactly what it is that, that you are articulating in, in your story is, is that there is a disconnect between the leadership that should understand, should have the operational picture and the young PFC Lance Corporal, who is, as you mentioned in your article, like operating at a graduate level of warfare, but yet his ultimate goal is to survive. Like, like you were saying, like a hundred engagements in a hundred days, but yet you're asking him to think about things in a strategic context of this, um, you know, courageous uh, restraint. And he's like, I just want to live if that's okay because I know I'll be right back at this thing again tomorrow. Sort of like you were mentioning with the farmer, like your, your, your threat of death is no longer what you think it is. Because if I go out at this time of the day, I will die. Whereas if I tell you, no, I may die. Um, so anyways, I guess all of that is to say that like in your article, then, um, you know, what are some of your thoughts then, um, you know, I, I obviously, as you know, you, you mentioned that you started this sort of this project in 2018, uh, you know, three years later. You know, what are some of your thoughts in hindsight um, when you juxtapose the idea that, you know, the coin sort of bumper sticker is you kill one insurgent, you made two more. So what are some of your thoughts that how, how this idea of making it just to the next engagement vice, this like big broad strokes idea of winning the hearts and minds and, and and that this you know courageous restraint although in the short term may seem problematic long term might actually help achieve operational strategic level goals you see is there any synergy there or that is it oil and water yeah so coming back to the, to the graduate level you know the you've got two special forces generals who had isaf back to back and you know when you're working with green berets I think you could expect your average enlisted guy to maybe be operating at a graduate level. And while uh, many of my Marines have grad, you know, uh, degrees and are brilliant, I I think your average 18 year old grunt to expect them, it's 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 uh, it's not going to happen. You're not your average 18 year old grunt is not going to be operating at a graduate level. They're going to do something really well. They're going to locate close with and destroy the enemy by fire maneuver like that's what they're going to do and they're not going to be great uh well builders and they're not going to be great uh judges in the district and they're not going to be great uh uh humanitarian assistance projects you know they they are you ask this 18 year old to take on all these roles that the people who have those roles don't even do the roles well, you know, and now you're asking this guy to, to be a police officer, do tactical site exploitation and this, and then, you know, it's like civil affairs projects. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 he's a rifleman, he's a machine gunner and he's really good at it. And, uh, but this idea that this graduate, whatever, that not applicable to the reality of, I think your average soldier or Marine, um, the operational disconnect, nothing new, you know? And so uh, you can read any book on Vietnam and, and find the, the same operational disconnect uh, occurring. And, you know, how do you mitigate some of the operational disconnect? Uh, you 
commander spending more time, uh, more veracity within reports, um, less pressure to report things in a specific way that meet. And, and so whether you read the Pentagon Papers or the Afghan Papers in the Washington Post, like all the parallels are there. And it's, it's either people setting an environment where any kind of information that didn't match what they wanted to hear was no thank you uh, or received hostily or completely disregarded. Um, and so it, it doesn't take a strategic genius to, to be able to uh, get a pulse for what's happening on the ground. And, and you know, MCP-1 talks about the value of, of the forward commander and, uh, and, and to, to get a real sense of what's going on in the fight. You, you got, you got to be there. And um, this kind of stuff where you got people in Kabul and Leatherneck, it's a different universe. It's a different world. Uh, there's a great... Yeah. Yeah, that whole, that whole green zone thing is just, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah. anyways. It, there's a great uh, scene in Matterhorn where the Atlantis's platoon is assaulting it, uh, an objective and the command is sitting on a thing called Helicopter Hill. And Helicopter Hill, because it's, you know, it's, it's a critique on the, the battalion commanders who would, you know, circle around and, and tell the guys, go left, go right do this and uh and that it's it's very much a spectator thing going on there at helicopter hill and to the point that when the marines clear the objective they can hear everybody clapping (laughs) you know and how atlantis almost starts to shoot back at helicopter hill he's so pissed off uh (laughs) and you know that that's just one uh one uh train feature away and they don't they're not even fighting the same war right And, and 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 so uh, it's not that every four-star general needs to be in a foxhole, uh, but I think uh, we need to really close the gap between uh, people developing the operational planning, uh, the strategic uh, goals, and the tactical realities. And and you know, this I hear you when you talk about the accidental insurgent. Uh, as Kill Colin Wright talked about the accidental insurgent. You, kill one guy and how his brother's going to fight you like yes there's a lot of validity to that premise uh but the people in helmet afghanistan whether you killed them or didn't kill them were going to be insurgents they don't want to be part of the government of afghanistan they don't believe in the government of afghanistan and it's not because we killed them or didn't kill them it's because they're a tribal people who are identified as pashtu and they have no reason to or desire not even reason desire uh look at pavlo's hierarchy of needs security being at the bottom that's all they care about and and they they can barely feed their family and they just want and and so it's not any of these higher ideals it's like can i farm and not starve and not and that's and so you know uh i i don't think I, I just I understand the idea you kill one, you make two, but there's some some conditions. It's just they're just I don't think the people in Helmet are necessarily bad people, but they were basically deemed bad by association. Uh, and so if, if you're telling me 
the Taliban uh, are the enemy. These people are Taliban, and, uh, and 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 it's not it's not going to be me not killing one that is what wins us over here. It's you know you you can kill your way pretty effectively through an insurgency. I, I think, um, and not every insurgency is is the same, obviously. But you look at the Philippines. Uh, there's they pretty effectively quelled. Uh, an insurgency in the Philippines. It wasn't through courageous restraint. That's for damn sure. Uh, you know, you look at uh, us fighting the Native Americans. Like, it wasn't that we gave them a lot of good deals. You know, uh, there there are effective means of fighting your way through an insurgency to create a security environment where those other things can then become variables or factors. To but uh, until you really eliminate that threat um we don't have the stomach for that we don't have the stomach for that kind of brutality that it would it would take uh you send first marine division into helmet province we'll quell it you know just turn off the lights (laughs) all this in a couple weeks and that place will be in pretty good order and maybe have conditions set for follow on hold or build but it's going to take first marine division it's going to the blue diamond is going to deploy there but I have to do what we have to do. And then you come talk to us. And I bet you say, that, okay, like the population is now ready to consider alternatives, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the thing about that sort of that, like you said, that can kill Colin mindset is, is that it's, it is applicable. And I think there's some truth to it, like you mentioned, but you can't apply it too soon. You've got to, you know, there's a lot of steps that have to occur. Like even when we start talking about Iraq, where it was successful, Sahul came along, like you said, after they had been getting kicked in the teeth for a bunch of years. And then they were just like, this isn't tenable. We can't sustain this. Yeah. And and it's because the general populace doesn't want to hear stories about clearing. You know, people in 2010 and 11 don't want they want to hear the hold and build stories. Right. And and so we're in a rush to get to the, the three blocks of war. We're in a rush to get to that hold and build. And it's it's. And the conditions are not set. And not only are the conditions not set because we're not giving them out of the time, you're not giving enough resources, and you are not prepared to be violent enough to achieve the, the right. clear. And, and, and it's, it's not that we can't do it. We can. Uh, it's that you've, you've got to give us the, the, the time and the tools, uh, and, and we can get you to whatever phase you want to get, but no one has any strategic patients uh to allow the tactical reality to 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 get there and and and, and the last part about that counterinsurgency piece is is you know in afghanistan we had a lot of carrots uh but not much of a stick right and so it was like we could do this civil affairs project we could do this civil wars project we could, and, and civil affairs project and we and the british did that a lot all throughout helmet and like the Afghan people are gonna be like, okay, locals are getting paid to build it. Uh, there's a new well. Uh, like you're gonna pave the road. Like they're going to accept those things. It's not, uh, you know. So I'm, I'm going to accept all the carrots, but I'm also not changing my opinion. I'm also not, and, and so they just they got to eat all the carrots, have none of the stick, and essentially just wait because they. 
and 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 when when there's a when the president says we're leaving and they yeah. it's like okay well let's just keep eating these carrots uh and they'll leave and 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 competing in an environment where all you have is a lot of carrots uh and the taliban conversely has a lot of stick <laughs> you you it's you're not going to win the local populace uh that way and uh and so i i think it was in a lot of ways never never going to work and um when i was back uh the next year as a as a as a recon advisor and as a jtac you know, they the afghan army was saying uh when you guys leave they will just all go back to being the same and that was so hard for me to accept because i had spent two years there and uh and i and i and what what i what i realized is uh i wanted this thing more for them than they wanted it for themselves yeah. which has been a great life lesson to not want something more for someone than they want it for themselves and and so when uh, I think it was 2014, uh, the New York Times article came out about how Sengen had, had been overrun, and it was heartbreaking, but not shocking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, and, and so, yeah. Hey, um, so one of the things that uh, really stood out in your article, um, other than just, um, you know, the way uh, that you, like I said, linked. Um, ideological mis- um, military history to current uh, employment is also what is the thing that I think you'd mentioned uh, it alludes to when you're talking about that uh, forward commander um, and you speak really eloquently uh, about your relationship with uh, Lieutenant uh, Robert Kelly and his dad, uh, General Kelly. Um for those of us who, you know, for either fortunate or unfortunately, uh, will never know the pressures of, you know, having to take the, take the hair of the dog from the president's former chief of staff. Um, can you go into a little bit about what it was, of, of your relationship was like um, in those uh, days and months that led up to your uh, deployment? Sure. Um, so I was Alpha Company, Rob was Bravo Company, uh, but we were in the same platoon at IOC. Uh, let me start off by just saying that uh, Robert Kelly was the best Marine officer I've ever met. Um, he was the standard in all things that we, in all our highest ideals, he was that. And uh, his father was our uh, guest speaker at our graduation at IOC. Um, the thing about Rob is that if you didn't know his dad was a general, I, he was never going to tell you. You know, he wasn't one of those guys that was ever going to work in it. I never would use it to to further his advantage. I he was so humble. I, honest to God, I'm sure there were Marines in his platoon that didn't have, didn't know. Who, and he just that's how you know he just uh, was was he didn't act you know, any different, any better. And, um, but, uh, Rob was, he was kind of like skinny. Uh, so me and this other meathead from Kilo company would kind of like talk crap to him every now and then. And he'd be like, Oh, cool. Um, yeah, well, you boots were, uh, trying to, you know, do a, 
a beer bong in college uh, to impress some, you know, girl. Uh, I was clearing Fallujah, uh, and it's like it's like it was like you could you just basically couldn't. Yeah, he punked us out every time. Uh, he had a real dry <laughs> sense of humor. Um, he uh, he his platoon. He took a rough platoon, and it, Lima Company was a rough crew. I was Kilo Company. He was Lima. They were right across the hall, but. He had a rough crew, and uh, you were going. He ran them quite literally into the ground until they started to have some discipline. And so, you know, I'd be leaving at seventeen hundred and pulling out of the parking lot in San Mateo, and there's a there's a helo pad in San Mateo, and it's straight up. And I'd see Rob Boots and Utes assault pack just <laughs> running those boys up, and uh, he was hard as nails. Um, but still, like, a very kind of gentle soul. And uh, he, had, he had recommended uh, that I read Starship Troopers to learn a little bit about NCO relationships. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff that NCO is about there. And uh, I carried that with me for a long time, and I ended up teaching that text. You know, so if, if I'm thinking about who the, the best junior officer but best officer I met, period, the best junior officer, if, if they recommend, and I, and, and I was at Naval Academy training, development, mentoring junior officers, so I actually taught Starship Troopers at the Naval Academy in Plebe English because uh, of Rob's recommendation. Um, one thing that will always stick out to me is, uh, you know, I, I was so depressed that, you know, 3-5 wasn't going to combat when I checked in. We were going on 31st Mew, and and when we got the news right before Christmas, I run across the hall and I'm like, dude, like, we're going. And, and like, he's so, and he's like, um, you know, I, I, I would have been okay going out in the Mew. <laughs> and I was, I was, I was taken aback and I didn't understand it at the time. I now understand that Rob is an assaultman in 1-8 clearing through Fallujah understood that he knew that this was going to mean he was going to be writing letters and he knew. And, and so, uh, you know, he was always, even though he was the buck Lieutenant, which is the most boot Lieutenant, uh, he was always a mentor to me. And, um, if I want to know what was the right way to do something about being a Marine officer. Like I would go to Rob and, uh, yeah, my, my, it's the night before we deploy, and uh, my buddy Cam West and I, I was sledgehammer one actual, three actual, uh, first platoon commander, third platoon commander, go out. You always would, got after it, and it's the last night before you deploy, so you really get after it. And uh, Rob, we weren't, the buses weren't coming until the evening, and uh, Rob called um, that morning and said, hey, uh, come out, have a little barbecue. We got to be at the battalion. And uh, it was like 10 o'clock and I was still in bed. He's like, my dad's got one of the cabins down at Del Mar on the beach. And uh, so show up and the first thing the general tell you does, <laughs> cracks a PBR, hands it to you, Tom, have a beer. You know, even just the smell of it, you know, you're going to throw up. It's very bright <laughs> outside, but you don't, you, what do you do? General hands you a beer. You say thank you, sir. You drink it, uh, and then Kelly's are Irish. Take a drink, and you know before you know it, he's giving you another beer. And uh, um, 
it was a beautiful day with a, an incredible family. Uh, and so much of that family's love and goodness was you know, centered around Rob. And that's why on the morning of 9 November, when uh, I was awoken with the news, um, I immediately just flashed back to the beach and saw those smiles and uh, the warmth and the love and um, knew that each, his wife, Heather, his sister, Kate, his brother, John, and Mr. Mrs. Kelly, I just knew, you know. And so uh, that was tough. That was a tough morning. And then um, I was supposed to lead a patrol. And uh, I talked to my squad leader and I said, you know, you think you can take this as a, you know, just a local kind of patrol? And he said, yeah, it's no problem. I'll take the patrol out. Um, and that, that squad hit an IED. Uh, and took a casualty, and as they were trying to bring that casualty back to base, they kept coming under heavy fire, and uh, they called for the QRF, and so I grabbed my kit, and and my my platoon sergeant ended up being on the same patrol with me, which normally you know are same in the same squad. It was just first squad was going out. Normally we would be in different squads, and uh, we helped that that unit come through and uh do a passage of lines they get back safely and 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 as we're breaking down the return to base my rear of my patrol comes under very very heavy fire multiple fire positions they get hammered and they're isolated in a canal and i'm in the front uh my platoon sergeant is just ahead of the the the, the team that's trapped and then my squad leaders you know in the middle and I think we went to you know do a quick platoon huddle and as the three of us came together my squad leader stepped on an id and uh i'm unconscious one way and uh squad leader gets blown and so when i i regain consciousness i i calm down i look at my squad leader and uh trey humphrey who was a man i dearly love and one of my to this day dearest friends uh to see two bones sticking out of his right leg and then his left leg is is missing all the skin and muscle but from his knee to the top of his boot it's just a bone and then i look to the left of him and my platoon sergeant another man you know when i think of my platoon sergeant i think of the the gates of fire and you know forget god forget country forget whatever noble thing that you fight here for t- today fight for this and this alone the man to your left and right for he is everything and everything is contained within him when I think of that, who is that person? He is everything and everything is contained within him. That was my platoon sergeant, Staff Sergeant Henley. To me. Uh, this man who was closer than you know any family could ever be. Uh, and he's laying there and he's bleeding out the ears. And uh, I, first thing an amputee is always going to want to know is, you know, do they, are they going to still be able to reproduce? And once you confirm uh, the goods are good to go, uh, Immediately, Humphrey starts to apologize and say, you know, sir, I'm sorry I stepped off the path. Because I can't believe I stepped off the path. And uh, Mike Humphrey, you know, maybe like you don't, you don't need to apologize right now. And, and I was, uh, anytime you have an amputee, it's going to take three or four guys to kind of just pack the meat. And what was one of, the, one of the greatest testaments to Humphrey is that by the time I regained my consciousness, his first team leader, Corporal Sean Leahy, had already uh, set security, called him the medevac, and had everything in motion. To me, that is the greatest testament to a leader is, is you know, how will they perform in his absence. And in, 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 in an instant, 
Leahy stepped up, took everything, ran, and uh, just what a testament to Leahy, but really to to, to uh, Humphrey for. And uh, so we get Humphrey bandage up and get him on a stretcher, and 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 some guys are carrying Henley, and uh, while this while we're carrying Humphrey off the battlefield, uh, he's a big guy, a little bit probably out of height, weight standards, uh, and. He keeps going, you know, I know I'm heavy. Just put me down. Um, Sir, I know I'm heavy. Just You guys take a break. You guys put me down. This is a guy who, in flight, they would have to resuscitate. A guy minutes before his death, quite literally, his last, you know, when you talk about what does it mean to be Semper Fidelis, you know, you talk about the brotherhood. Uh, a guy whose thoughts immediately preceding his death was like, I don't want to inconvenience my friends. I know I'm heavy. You guys take a break. Um, you know, no, Humphrey, we're not going to take a break. <laughs> uh, we're going to and, and, um, get them loaded onto the helicopter and my, my company commanders, like, you got to go. You got to go. You're all. And I'm like, the heart and soul of the platoon, you know, just these two, my, my first squad leader, my platoon sergeant, like, He's like, I'm not going, and uh, brings me in and to see the IDC, and they're patching me up, and it's like, uh, you know, what happened? And the files had been deleted. I had no idea what had happened, and I could not. And uh, I went to debrief with my platoon, and uh, you know, the, the IDC is like telling me the whole time, like, you need to fly out the Leatherneck tomorrow. I'm like, I'm not doing it doc and then uh they go okay two weeks light duty at a minimum then i'm like all right doc and so as soon as i get patched up a little bit and leave the bs i debrief my platoon and i say like what happened (laughs) and so like then the files start to re-upload and uh i'm like tomorrow we're gonna go do humphrey's revenge and uh and to me the best remedy that you could do for when you take a punch best thing you could do when you take a L, when you take a loss, is go out and get a win. And so not allow people to feel sorry for themselves, not allow people to think the enemy is 10 feet tall. And so we went back out the next day and we kicked their ass and really stacked a lot of bodies, all within the rules of engagement, mind you. Uh, but it was important for my platoon to get that win right after having such a loss. And the doc sees me coming in the next day. <laughs> it was like... But WTF, sir. Uh, like, sorry, Doc. And, and you know, so November 9th, very bad day. Started with uh, with, with losing uh, what again? What I would say is is it was a, was a the greatest Marine officer I've ever met. But uh, I know he was a phenomenal brother, son, and husband. Uh, just man. And um, a week later, who do I see coming off the helicopter? But my platoon sergeant, who can't even walk and he's falling one way off falling this way coming off the helicopter and i'm like Cesar, what are you doing and he's like oh i'm back sir i'm like you don't appear to be ready to be back he's like put me on the next manifest for the next patrol sir i'm like we're going on a three-day op Cesar, and we walk in ranger file because there's ieds everywhere and you can't walk in a straight line it's like uh all right put me on the next manifest for the next patrol sir i'm like i'm not putting you on the next manifest Sure enough, who's out of the next patrol? Sassar Henley. And, and, and here is the testament to our Marines. And we talked about this before this started. You know, what is the best thing about the 
what is the thing that the Marine Corps has that no amount of is the Marines, right? And, and here's this guy who, when he was in Fallujah, he was a squad leader of Phantom Fury. And on the way back to, uh, they were returning to base, and he turned around right before they went into the ECP and said, hey, y'all better stop throwing rocks back there. And went into the went into the patrol base, went back to his hooch, and someone said, "Hey, sergeant, um, your trousers are all red. You've been shot in the ass. Uh, it's got so hard that uh, and um, he had a one way ticket out of Phantom Fury. You know, they they wanted to send him to Germany. They wanted to send him home. And he said, "I'm not leaving. You know, Wolf on Wall Street. I'm not leaving." And he's back with his boys two weeks after getting shot in Fallujah, when he has a golden ticket out of there, you know, uh, in the sick. And so he's in the, the deadliest, most lethal battle in Iraq. And now he finds himself in the deadliest, and most lethal battle in Afghanistan. And he's again, got a one way ticket. He says, I'm not leaving my boys. And, uh, when he came back a week later, you know, my platoon started calling him black Jesus, uh, because they couldn't believe that he'd already, you know, been resurrected. And, uh, it's just, uh, yeah, what, a I, I, uh, I actually just got to promote him to the first sergeant a couple of years ago and, uh, he's still in and, uh, yeah. Uh, so general Kelly ended up coming out. Uh, he was assistant to the, uh, assistant sec Listen to the Secretary of Defense. I don't know Zach Billet, but uh, he worked for Secretary Gates at the time, and they both came out. Uh, so I got to see them out in country. He got to meet the Marines and the corpsmen who had been there with Rob, and you know, of course, Rob was walking point, and Rob was doing the hard things, and when other people were jumping over a canal, Rob was walking through the canal, and, and you know, and so uh, right up to the end, there's there's a picture of Rob. Uh, there's a picture of Rob. As a as an officer, with the small rockets on his back, you know, still as a, as an officer, just everything about him, you know, leading by example, and never doing anything that his Marines would do. And and I talk a little bit about, uh, I, I I think I closed the article with with some, with some with some stuff from General Kelly, and, and he you know, says like, well, what does it all mean, you know? And was it's you know, not up, it's not up to us, the living, you know. Those who sacrificed their life, they voted. And, and it's their vote that matters. They said, this, this thing matters. You know, I'm going to fight and die. And, and, and uh, to me, that's all the testament that you need. And, and you know, he's, he's talking about how we're, we're, they're not victims. Uh, warriors can never be victims because they died leaning into the fire next to their corpsmen and their Marines who they loved. And these these men were not victims and uh you can you can listen to it or read his six seconds to live speech with with yale and, and, and herder uh about that or you can listen to any one of his talks and he talks about what service means and, and who are these men and women that make up our core and just how they're just the salt you know the salt of the earth and uh and they're they're not they're just they're the people at your grocery store, you know, they're not, you know, we, we say, oh, there's some superhero. No, they're just the people who decided to step up when it was, when, when, when someone needed that, when the nation needed that, that's who they are. They're just, they're your average citizen who said, I'm going to step up. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, I, I still, 
I had my midshipman uh, read a, a knock at the door, and I run a book club, and I had us read the knock at the door, which uh, Rob's wife was was a co-author with um, Mooney and and, and Mannion, and uh, so I had all the mids. I had the mids on at Quantico, and, and we all jumped on a call with with all of them to talk about uh, that knock at the door, and, and um, General I. General Kelly jumped in on my book call, book club call last last week. We had uh, Stephen Pressfield uh, join us for my book club, and uh, and uh, so yeah, I mean this just a family who you know they're they're a no bullshit family, and uh, when you look at a record of service, they're the, you know I think they stand in the annals of great great American families. Um, yeah, absolutely. So then, so. What then would you would like, uh, not just for our listeners, but I mean, just for the American people to, um, you know, whose experience of Afghanistan is limited to just political talking points, what would you like um, for them to know about what you, Rob, and, and thousands of others understand about Afghanistan and the Afghan people? Yeah. Was it a waste? No, it wasn't a waste because it's... Uh... It's the best days of my life. It's the worst days of my life. Um, it's it's the refinement of my character. Uh, it's how I find out who I am as a man. And I meet Zach, my interpreter, who ends up becoming one of my best friends. And uh, those bonds that were forged under fire um, are some of the strongest you ever make. And so, um, and. And for a moment, people had improved quality of life. You know, for a moment, girls had more access and more rights. And to me, that's not, you know, it's not a waste. Was there significant amounts of waste? Well, yes. I mean, you could look at $89 billion of whatever, and you could look at, you know, so you could look at, like, one of the most enduring characteristics of war is waste you can read marlantis you could read webb you could read o'brien and they're going to just keep drilling the waste of war you know but was the and and it's and it's really not my my thing is it's not up to the warrior the warrior goes where they're told you know the warrior answers a call uh they're you know it's called orders you know, and so the warrior follows orders. And so I did something that I think was really meaningful, even if it didn't win the war, uh, but in a, in, a, in a microcosm, what we did meant something. Those 25 killed in action, Kevin Nguyen, Benagua, Abate, Jason Pito, Robert Kelly, you know, that their sacrifice definitely, definitely means something. And, and and what you have to ask is is you have to ask from a societal standpoint, well, was it worth it? You know, you who allowed it, permitted it, whatever, you are the ones that have to reconcile uh, how you want to feel about it. Um, I am in my profession and the warrior profession, you know, I'm going to go 
where I'm sent and I'm going to do the best I can with what I have. And I'm going to find a way to win my own battle. My Marines are going to find a way to win the battle you ask us to fight. Uh, but next time you want to start a war, you have to ask yourself uh, if you have the stomach for it. And you have to ask yourself the basic, basic uh, principles of, you know, what is it that you hope to achieve? And do we have the ways, means, and ends to achieve that? And if you can't clearly articulate that, uh, then maybe you don't start the war. Um, because when these young men are dead, they're dead forever. And while we carry their legacy, they stay, they live through the legacy that, that by us saying their names, they're here and they're not forgotten. This potential, this potential of the 13, that's, there was a, there was real human potential there. And, uh, in an instant, it, it was wiped off the earth. And, uh, so you, you gotta, societally, you gotta ask yourself, uh, is, is this worth it? And, 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 and it's okay if the conditions change, you have to be able to change and adapt with the war and say, and not keep wishing for the war, uh, you know, fight the war you have, not the war that you're wishing for. And too often uh, we fight the war that we wish we have, uh, this imaginary war that is never actually the real war that we're fighting. And it's not impossible to know what the real war is. And the real war is the point, man. Ask the point man. And you can read accounts about the point man um, from, again, Marlantis and Matterhorn or, or Webb. His point man is Catman. Catman, to me, is the most iconic you know, point man in literature. You want to know what's going on. You go find the point man. And it doesn't have to be a mystery. Because um, they're, they're living it. They're living the reality of that war. And uh, I, that's, that's what I would... That's my... Those are my thoughts on, on that kind of Well, thank you so much. I mean, it, it's it's really powerful to hear your accounts of things. Um, and yeah, your perspective obviously is, is very, uh, very welcome, especially in this forum. Um, before we cut out, though, man, I know. Uh, and thank you again for taking as much time in the evening um, to sit down with me on this. But um, last thing I want to talk about is uh, your current project. I know, obviously, as a uh, you know, a Naval Academy instructor and now a Naval Post uh, or Naval War College student. Um, you know, infantryman, you got a lot on your plate, but you've got something very important on your plate as well. Um, you mind talking a little bit about that, about PB Abate? Sure. Matt Abate, Navy Cross recipient, uh, killed in action December 2nd, 2010. Uh, if Robert Kelly was the best Marine officer I've ever met, uh, Matt Abate is is the greatest warrior I've ever met. And, you know, I fought alongside a lot of really badass guys, you know, some real tough dudes. There was all of us, and then somewhere a mile above us was was Matabate. He he was really in a class of his own when uh it came to just his absolute tactical, physical prowess 
Um, he's he is should be right there with Dan Daly, John Baslow, when we talk about you know legendary Marines in our history. And, and so he's someone I've always wanted. You know, part of my life mission is is honoring the fallen, and 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 he's someone I've always wanted to make sure that I honor his legacy. And so in April of 2020, um, I just put my daughter to bed and I, I received a, a call that uh, was late that Corporal Justin McLeod had killed himself. And, and Corporal Justin McLeod wasn't the first, you know, Marine suicide that I had dealt with, but McLeod was particularly tough because he, before we deployed, he was up against his EAS. He had, uh, he had D1 scholarships and in high school to go play college ball. And he enlisted with, Went, went with 3-5 to Fallujah, went on that 31st Mew, and by the time he was mine, he did the entire workup with us, but he's, he had just had a son, Desmond, and I said, you know, I was going to extend, uh, but I think I'm going to uh, EAS, and I, and I said, you know, man, we, we, we need you. You're, you're, you're a designated marksman. You're my land nav guy. You're, and, uh, but ultimately, talk to your wife and come back and, and let me know, and he came back, uh, a couple of days later, and said, "You know what, sir? You're my family too." About three months later, uh, my engineer would step on a pressure plate, and McLeod was over the charge. And as I came to the front of the patrol, um, one of my Marines handed me McLeod's fingers, and uh, I got to McLeod, and he was already basically dead, and no, no pulse, and. Uh, and I noticed, you know, very high amputee, missing two legs, missing part of his arm. I knew he wasn't going to need those fingers anymore. I'd awkwardly placed in my cargo pocket. And I'll tell you what, you know, the Marine Corps does a really phenomenal job of pre- preparing you for combat. I am a big believer in, in, in the infantry officers course uh, in, in, your, in, our, in our pre-deployment training. There, there were not... Tactically, there were not any situations that I came across that I, I didn't feel prepared to, to fight my way through. Technically, I always felt competent in, in whatever I was. Uh, but there were a couple scenarios, and this was one of them, where no amount of training can really prepare you. Uh, and as I watch a dying Marine uh, in front of me, I, how can I help him find the way and the will to live? And I am giving him a sternum rub, and I am telling him, hey, McLeod, and you're doing this when you know the Marines are looking at you, and uh, all you want to do is cry at the loss of someone you love, one of your sons. And uh, I said, you got to make it back because you said you were going to you know, teach Desmond how to play baseball, and you said you were going to be his little league coach and now i'm thinking this guy doesn't have an arm and doesn't have any legs and uh but the will to live is a powerful thing and it, and it took and it took and um you know court mcleod has been fighting the battle saying in for over a decade and hundreds of surgeries and he, and he you know finally um finally lost that battle and i was actually just a couple of weeks ago i gave the eulogy uh at his memorial ceremony because it was postponed because of covid I flew out to St. Louis. Um, and then within 30 days, one of the sergeants from when I was a company commander and, and another one of the junior Marines from when I was a company commander committed suicide. And 
you know, I'm just not a guy who just, I just feel like if there's a, as a leader, if there's a problem, you should, you should deal with it. And I just said, you know, what is going on? And as I started to read through all the VA suicide reports, uh, I found that, you know, over a decade of these reports, the leading proximal cause to veteran suicide were feelings of disconnectedness and isolation. Disconnectedness and isolation. Um, I said, okay. And then what I, what I wasn't anticipating that I found is that there was no clear correlation between uh, combat and suicide and that almost twice as many non-combat veterans were killing themselves as combat veterans. I said, okay. So if we know Marines uh, who feel that disconnectedness and, and isolation are the, are the ones who are killing themselves, and we know it's not just combat Marines. Conversely, it's actually twice as many non-combat. So what is out there, what resources are out there that are putting Marines connecting Marines, putting them in, back in community. Because as an officer, right, I've constantly, constantly got to fight against the idea of reinventing the wheel. You know, I've got to say, is, if there's something already out there doing this, and what I found is, is about 99% of the resources are allocated to about 1% of the population. That 1% of the population are our combat wounded and our special forces. And to me, it made so much sense that you, your main effort you know, are the people who sacrifice the most, special forces and the people who put their limbs out there, you know? Uh, so, of course, that's where you start, but it really felt like we started and stopped there. <laughs> and um, I, I said, you know, we got to, I, I think there's more, there's got to be, uh, I, I think we can continue, you know, to, to add some some resources here. And so, as I'm look, as I started to look through all these different resources that were out there to and everything said, oh, check this box. If you want our resource, you got to check this box. You got to be disabled enough. You got to be, ha- had gone to this combat. You had to be part of the special SEAL team. You had to, have, uh, and, you know, I'm combat wounded guy. I was, I can, I can probably check a lot of boxes. But what if I don't want to so narrowly define myself as someone with, what if I have PTSD? But what if I don't want to just put myself in a, P- what if I just want to say, I'm Tom, I served, and I think communities, and I would like to be part of this community, you know? And so everything felt so exclusionary. And I said, what if we can build a community where service is the only requirement? What if I could build this, this community where if you raise your right hand, you're in? No dues, no fees, no weird handshakes. No, like, your service is your ticket to entry. And, and, and when, when we think about all these non-combat veterans killing themselves, to me, it makes perfect sense. You know, when I was at Georgetown, I spent a lot of time studying moral injury, and I read a lot of Jonathan Shea, Achilles in Vietnam, and of course I read Tribe, and everyone's read Tribe at this point. And, and, and the, the, the idea that uh, if you're in a submarine, or you're an air crew on a C-17, or if you're in a motor T-section, you know, all those jobs are important jobs. And you are in a very tight crew. You know, you're in a submarine for 90 days at a time. You know, you're working on the seven tons. You're on the aircraft turning wrenches. Like, and when I, and, and what do we want? We want a task, you know, we want that purpose. We want, we want the tribe and we want the purpose. And it's, and, and I'm telling you like, hey, it's important that C-17s fly. Like I can, hopefully I can convince you like why the, it's important that nuclear submarines are somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, you know? And so like, 
it's like, okay, I do have something purposeful. I am part of this thing that's purposeful. And I've been issued a tribe, like your squad, your division. your And, and so uh, people who everyone to the left and right of you had said, like, I'm actually willing to die for you. That's like a pretty intense tribe that, that we, we put around you. And, and, uh, and, and so, and then you get out and, and all the data it says is that the most vulnerable year is that first year transition and you get out and you, and you take off and you, it's an identity crisis because you don't have a name, you don't have a name tape and you don't have a rank and you don't have that issue that you don't have that. Here's your mission statement. The, the, the mission of the Marine Rifle Squad is locate closely. You don't have that mission statement. You don't have. You were you were in first fire team, first squad, you know, and now and, and you were a machine gunner. And like, wow, like that's a cool job. And uh, and so I said, look, I'm gonna go. Uh, I went and got 350 acres out in Montana because I wanted to be outside because I'm a believer in the outdoors, uh, and I wanted veterans to have, and I wanted to be out west in the mountains because I think this is where good stuff happens, and I wanted it to be a physical space that that there was real terra firma, dirt, that every veteran, active duty, veteran, uh, reservist, National Guard, says, there's a place for me, and I belong there. And it's not a conceptual or a theoretical place. It's No, it's a no-shit 350-acre retreat, ranch, that you belong at. And, and you know, when I, when I would tell this to people initially, they'd be like, me? Like, well... I was just, and so this is what I've been fighting, this, this I was just narrative. I'm just a, I was just a, and, and I said, no, uh, your service matters. And, and we've been deluded with this social media hierarchy to think that if you didn't kill Osama bin Laden, if you didn't have a suppressor on your weapon and four nods, that your service really didn't. And, and I want to say like, hey, uh, IPAC Marine, you know, uh, Air Force, uh, uh, turbine engine wrench turner, like all of it matters. And, and, and so, yes, you, you actually rate to be at the, and, 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 and so, uh, we really, you know, we built a very large tent and, you know, put a big table in there and said, you got a seat at this table. And, and, uh, and, and I wanted to make it accessibility and inclusivity, right. We're kind of really the, the driving you know, goals here. And so, I didn't make I'm I'm a literature guy and I like and I'm a grunt. So I like walking, uh hiking and I like books, you know, but I didn't want it to make it just the and because and, and so I said, look, we're gonna do a interest-based concept. And if you're into gardening, if you're into yoga, if you're into hunting, if you're into jujitsu, if you're into weightlifting, you name it, if you're into it and you want to leave the club, we'll bring you out. And you can do that thing here for and 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 so any kind of excuse that you might have, like, oh, that sounds cool, but I'm not a big literature guy. I know they got a book club, but I'm not. It's like, okay, well, what kind of guy are you? What kind of gal are you? Okay, like, we got that club, actually. Or we don't, but do you want to lead it? And you can go do it in Montana. And 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 you can do it for free, you know? And so because we don't want anybody to have any reason where they feel excluded, we do a free of charge. So you're going to do the thing that you love, we're flying you out. We're picking you up. We're feeding you, and you're going out there for three days out in Montana to do the thing that. And so, uh, 
we ran several retreats this summer, hunting, uh, book fights, strength clubs. Uh, we just had a music club out there a couple weekends ago. And I've been out there for these retreats. And I can, the, the testimonials, it's, it's people saying, like, this changed my life. This was the most significant weekend in my life. Uh, this, you know, this saved my life. And so it's, it's not uh, what's, what's happening out there, the, you know, our methodology with what we do in our physical retreats is it's working. And then, but I wanted it to be enduring and sustainable. And I'm also a narrative guy, again, coming back to literature piece and, and this, this, this too much of this narrative around the veteran is victim is that veterans are damaged, broken, uh, entitled. And I say, you know, that's not the veterans that I know. We're men and women of character and men and women of service. And so we started these local chapters um, in every, we've got 50 of them all, all across the country. And in any city, if you look up Patrol Base Abate, Chicago, Boston, San Diego, Portland, you name it, you name the city, we've got a Patrol Base Abate chapter there. And it's so that we can't bring everybody out every weekend to the Patrol Base, but we can uh, give you that tribe locally at any time and it's predicated on a, a, a social component and a service component because i believe what we need is that is we need to continue to feel like we're sacrificing and serving and so again to not reinvent the wheel i said each of these local chapters is going to find a local partner who ha is trusted in in the community so where's the soup kitchen in the community where's the uh you know our our our, our, our san diego chapter does uh recycle for veterans there's an organization out there that picks up the beach and oceanside you know and so Again, we don't. What we do is we find them and we say, "Hey, we're going to be the largest veteran service organization in the country because we're the most inclusive. Because there's over 17 million veterans and they're all eligible. And there's almost you know million on active duty and they're all eligible and National Guard and the Reserve. And so we're going to bring the manpower uh, we want to serve. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go pick up trash on the beach and we're going to say, look, not only are veterans not looking for handouts, we're people of continued service." And then we're going to go to pizza port and grab a slice of pizza after, you know. And so you've got that tribe. You've got that purpose again. And and the last thing about what we're doing with this is, is we have such a strong uh, initiative to get active duty folks into patrol base Abate. Because if we know that first year transition is the most vulnerable year, we got to get left a bang. Mm -hmm. we got to be it, yeah. proactive preemptive and everything out there is is so reactive oh you just try to kill yourself oh it's everything is like after the bad thing happened now we're now you could okay now you could you know have access to our resource and, and what we're saying is uh whether you're fit for full duty light duty wherever you're at and you know your mental health whatever we want you while you're on active duty uh and so that we we've got your six, you know, we've got your flank covered so that when you go, when you start that transition, which everybody's going to transition 40 years or 40 years, 40 years or 40 years, right? You've got someone that says like, Hey, I actually just transitioned last month here. Here's what I, I just transitioned four years ago here. And, you know, we've got everybody in all walks of that transition phase that can kind of come alongside you and mitigate that, uh, that period of, of, of risk. And so, you know, any given weekend, all around this country, you've got local chapters of Patrol Base Abate meeting. And then uh, all summer, we're running retreats out in Montana. And if you are active duty, uh, a veteran, National Guard, reservist, and you've served, uh, we want you in our tribe. And uh, that's that's what we got going on with Patrol Base Abate. Man, that is amazing. And uh, I mean, I, I, I love the 
everything you had to say about the incl- inclusivity part. I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is that whole idea of like taking back control of the narrative and giving agency back to the storyteller. And like you said, I mean, the kind of, the, the kind of the, the popular understanding of a service member is he was either in special forces, he was a CG of some task force that, you know, blew, you know, won some battle or some war has their name, uh, you know, attested to some major campaign and that the guy who stood post or, dude who repaired the uh you know the the t-rat uh machine or like you said the seven ton driver their their stories don't matter it's only the guys um uh, in the you know obviously the bookshelves are just filled with those things that you know bring truth you know make that seem like that's the truth of veterans is that you're either special forces or metal water winner and then everybody else so anyways Really love everything that you got going on. How can people find out more about this, about PB Abate? Yep. Uh, so PB, uh, Papa Bravo, Abate.org. Abate has two Bs in it, A-B-B-A-T-E, PBAbate.org. Um, and it's, again, it's simple. It's you, you, If you are any of those things, sign up, join the club that you're into, uh, put your zip code in, and, and what's going to happen is a big on reception integration. You know, the, the fight club, if you're into jiu-jitsu, the fight club captain's going to say, hey, Welcome to Fight Club. And then if you're in Chicago, Chicago Club guys will say, hey, welcome to Chicago. Uh, happy to have you in. And and, and then uh, – and we're also really active on Instagram. So just at PB about that on Instagram. So uh, th- those would be the two places to, to find us. That's awesome, man. And, I mean, as a, as a literature guy, um, there's so much more that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, but I don't want to monopolize your time because I could seriously sit here all night and talk to you, man. But, um, I really appreciate your time. I really would love to get you back on the show. Maybe we talk about some literature, talk about your professional development. I'm really fascinated too with your education track because it seemed like between Georgetown Naval Academy, um, Rhode Island, and then, you know, I definitely want to keep in touch and, and follow your path too because you've got a lot going on. But, um, man, thank you so much for taking your time. Um, and, I just it really powerful stuff, man. And, 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 um, I think I know I've got a lot to think about. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I really appreciate your time. I can't say, I can't appreciate, tell you how much, uh, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity, uh, stay in the fight and keep attacking. Thanks. Hey, All right, man. Thanks. Have a good night. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scuttlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA. (laughs) 